John chapter 1. Like I said last week, the Gospel according to John begins with this theological prologue. From the very beginning of his writing, it's as if John was telling us all that in order for us to comprehend and to understand the good news of Jesus Christ, we must first and foremost realize that Jesus is God in the flesh. So last week we looked at verses 1 through 13. In doing so, we discovered many things. We discovered that Jesus is eternal. That means He's not a created being. He never had a beginning because He was in the beginning with God. So the Word was in a special relationship of eternal fellowship with God the Father. So not only was the Word with God, But the Word was God. And so in eternity past, God and the Word, or the Father and the Son, have always been in perfect fellowship with each other. So both the Father and the Son are God. They're not two gods. They are one God. We even saw, according to verse number 3, that Jesus was the one who created all things. And and so among the Godhead, Jesus was the active agent who made all things. Today we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18. This section finishes out this theological prologue. And so the Gospel according to John is summarized in these first 18 verses. Now, this, this prologue is summarized in verses 14 through 18. And, and the summary for verses 14 through 18 is actually verse number 14. So look at verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, sorry, John began by saying, and the word became flesh. In the Greek, that word is eunome. Uh, eunome means, or it's translated as become, but it's not talking in terms of being created. It's not the idea that God created Jesus out of nothing. No, remember from last week, Jesus is eternal. So it's the idea that Jesus became a man. Jesus clothed Himself with the flesh of humanity. And so when you really give this statement the consideration that it's due and it deserves, that you'll find that this is one of the most profound statements that have ever been uttered throughout the course of history. It says the word became flesh. And do you know what that what that's saying? The word became flesh. It's saying that God became a man. It's saying that the eternity got squeezed into time. That that the supernatural took on the natural. It's saying that the invisible clearly became visible. Oh, what a glorious thought. The Word became flesh. The Son of God became a man. 
Jesus became flesh. Our Heavenly Father came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so there's no doubt about what John is trying to say here. Because the word for flesh is the same word that, that Paul would use to describe the natural man with, with all of its weakness and its tendency to sin. So this is a staggering thought. Jesus Christ is fully God. And yet, Jesus Christ is a man. Fully man. Fully God and fully man. The term we use for that is the hypostatic union. He is 100% God and 100% man at all times. Jesus is the perfect expression of God in human form. The two most common errors that, that people make about Jesus are in either they minimize His humanity or they minimize His divinity. Jesus is both fully divine and He is fully human. Now Paul captures this truth in his letter to the church at Philippi. In Philippians chapter 2, he says this, he says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. That, that term emptied comes from a Greek word, kino. And kino speaks of divesting of his self-interest. It's a divestment of his self-interest, but not a divestment of his deity. And so he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think about that. For 33 years, the Son of God dwelt among us. That word dwelt is an interesting word. It means to pitch His tent. This means that He really came to live among us. He became part of our culture. He became part of our world. He was one of us. Living among us. Which is really nothing new for God. Because God had done this in the past. God pitched His tent in the past in the Old Testament. I mean, didn't He? I mean, what was that tent called in the Old Testament? Anyone? The tabernacle. Absolutely. So God tabernacled with Israel in the Old Testament. And God tabernacled with the world, with Jesus, for 33 years. I want you to realize that there's another glorious realization of the 
tabernacling. I'm making up words today, so just go with me. The tabernacling, I like that word, of God. Listen to what John says in Revelation chapter 21. There he says, and I heard, yeah, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. What that's telling us is that God has tabernacled among His people in the past. And in the future, He will tabernacle with His children for all eternity. And in the meantime, for a span of 33 years, He tabernacled with us in the body of Jesus Christ. And when He did, Scripture says that we beheld His glory. Look at verse number 14. Again, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the phrase, and we saw His glory, that phrase, the word saw, or some of your translations might have the word we beheld. So we saw or we beheld comes from a Greek word, theame, And that word is used about 22 times in the New Testament. That word means to look at, to actually see with the human eyes. It's to see something, to give evidence to something. So there's no confusion here. John was actually saying that he literally saw the glory of God. Jesus has been referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. You heard that phrase before? The Shekinah glory? That term came from Jewish rabbis. Jewish rabbis are the ones that kind of introduced that language to us. The Shekinah glory. It literally means to cause to dwell. Cause to dwell. Shekinah glory. Cause to dwell. Now, although the word Shekinah is not found in the Scriptures, and so the concept clearly is evident throughout history. I'll give you some examples. The Shekinah glory of God was first evident when the Israelites escaped from Egypt. The glory of the Lord appeared to them. Exodus chapter 13 says that they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham. On the edge of the wilderness, the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that he might travel, that they might travel by day and by night. And so the glory of God was given to his people through that pillar. He said he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before. The people. So, so the manifestation of God for the Israelites was in that pillar. And then later in Exodus chapter 40, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting 
because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's saying that the the manifestation of God's personal presence filled the tabernacle. Now in the New Testament, Jesus becomes the dwelling place for the glory of God. Colossians chapter 2 says, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's why Jesus is able to to declare unto Philip in John chapter 14, verse number 9, and He says, Anyone who has seen Me has seen the Father. And so, Jesus wants the glory of God. And although that glory was veiled, right? Jesus was God's personal manifestation, God's personal presence on earth. Now, now quickly turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 17. There, I want, I want you to see for yourselves, in your own scriptures right there, these aren't on the screen. Matthew chapter 17. So, so Jesus veiled the glory of God, but there was a time when Jesus pulled back that veil. There was a time when, when Jesus allowed Peter, James, and John to behold Him in His glory. And so Matthew chapter 17, beginning at verse number 1, says six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, His brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun. And his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elisha appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. In other words, these guys, they're like, God, this is so good. Like, we don't want to leave this place. Let us erect a tabernacle here so that we can forever dwell. And then in verse number 5, it says, While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Jesus came to them, touched them, and said, Get up. Do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. There was a time when Jesus pulled back that veil to display the fullness of his glory. And so back in John, John chapter 1, verse 14, when John says, and we saw, he's saying that we actually beheld the Shekinah glory. God's very presence was dwelling among us. We looked at him, and we could tell that this was something unique. This was something different, both in in person and in being, in character and in behavior in ministry, and in work. All that Jesus was, was so remarkably and distinctly different 
than anyone else. Think about it. Jesus was the explicit embodiment of grace and truth. Jesus was the the personal personification of love, joy, and peace. Jesus was the exact expression of patience, kindness, and goodness. Jesus was the model manifestation of faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The glory of God lived right there among them, and they saw Him with their very eyes. And it says, and they saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. (laughs) Grace. And grace is such a beautiful word. Perhaps there's no other word that can so express the depth and the richness of both the heart and mind of our God. And yet, there is such a huge difference in concept and understanding between God's grace and man's grace. Whereas we can sometimes do favors for a friend or or kind acts for other people, and in doing so, we might be referred to as being gracious. Well, God has done something that is completely unheard of among men. God has given His one and only Son to die for His enemies. Romans chapter 5, verses 8-10 through 10 says, But God demonstrated His own love towards us, And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Jesus' laying down of His life for His enemies, reveals and shows that He is the perfect embodiment of the grace of God. Jesus was also the very embodiment of truth. In John chapter 14, verse number 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. So Jesus is the truth, and He speaks the truth. John chapter 8, Jesus said, But because I speak the truth, you do not believe. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? So, Jesus is the truth who speaks the truth. And to say that He is full of truth is to claim that He is the perfect revelation of the glory of God. And then to support his claim, now John now goes to outside testimony, other witnesses. That's why in verse number 15, it says John testified about him. John is not referring to himself. Here, John is referring to John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist testified about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, 
for He existed before me. Uh, John very simply declared that Jesus was born after Him. He says, He who comes after me. In fact, Jesus was born six months after John. So, so John says, He was born after me. But then he says that Jesus has a higher rank than I do. He says, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. So what he's saying is, He is more important in being and in dignity. So why is He more important? Well, because He existed before me. So John testifies to the fullness of this truth. It's as if John the Baptist was saying, now listen, I know I I came before Jesus. Oh, I, I know that my ministry started before Jesus. But you need to understand that Jesus is God. And He's been around from the very beginning. And so in verse 16, it says, For of His fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The word in verse number 16, that word fullness, means totality. It is the full measure. It's the full measure with an emphasis on completeness. So Jesus is the sum total of all that God is. In Jesus dwelt all the totality of wisdom, of righteousness, the totality of sanctification, the totality of redemption, they all existed in Jesus. Going back to Colossians chapter 2, Paul said it like this, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. John says it like this, For of His fullness we have received and grace upon grace. So it's at this point that John now includes all believers, not just himself. All believers receive the fullness of Christ, which means there's not a single believer that can receive all of Christ. There's not a single person that can receive all of Christ, therefore depleting Christ of his ability to give to others. Does that make better sense? It's saying that nothing or no one can deplete Jesus. He keeps on giving. His strength cannot be diminished. So in Colossians 2 verse number 9, it says, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And then in verse number 10, it says, And in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. To understand what that's saying, it's saying that the, the fullness of Jesus provides for the completeness of man. The only way that we can be filled and satisfied is in and through Jesus. He is what completes us. Without Jesus in our lives, then we are missing something significant. We'll never experience the fullness of life, the fullness of peace, unless we have Jesus in our hearts. 
And so going back to John's writing, when John says, for of His fullness we have all received in grace upon grace, that term grace upon grace in the Greek text literally says grace in place of grace. It is a grace replenishing grace. Grace given by Jesus can never be exhausted. Can never be depleted. Because Jesus is full of grace. Then in verse number 17, we discover that the fullness of God, of His grace and His truth, are fully understood through Jesus Christ. Which means that we could not fully understand the grace and truth of God unless Jesus had come to reveal it unto us. That's why John writes in verse number 18, and he says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Jesus is the one that has explained God. I want you to think about all the truths that have been declared in this opening prologue. Think about it. The Word is eternal. The Word was with God. So Jesus is eternal. Jesus was with God. In fact, Jesus was God. All things were created by the Word. Jesus was the active agent of the Godhead in the creation of all things. And not only that, the Word then clothed Himself with humanity. In clothing Himself with humanity, the Word came near and tabernacled among us. The Word, in doing so, fully revealed the glory of God. Which means, the Word gives truth to the ignorant or the deceived. And the Word gives grace to the guilty. The question for all of us to consider is, what have you done in response to this most magnificent gift given to humanity. For us, at Christmas time, the realization is that the greatest gift of Christmas is not something to be given. No, the greatest gift of Christmas is someone to be received. Have you received the greatest gift given to man? In John chapter 1, verse number 12, John says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name. So my question this morning is, do you believe? Do you believe and have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If you believe and have received then how are you living out that expression of faith in this world today? I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to have just a few moments of uh, prayer, a time of responding to the Word. And if you would like for someone to pray with you or to talk with you, uh, the staff, elders, and I, we would be more than glad and excited to do that for you. But before we get to that point, let's bow our heads, close our eyes, 
Let me pray for each and every one of us. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for this day. God, I pray that we would not be distracted by the nonsense of Christmas time, but that we would be focused on the true reason why believers celebrate this season. You became flesh. You dwelt among us. And through your Son, you fully displayed your glory, your grace, your truth. Father, help us to understand that it's only in Jesus that we can be complete. So, Father, I pray that your Spirit would move among us this morning, guiding and directing all of our thoughts and our decisions in this moment. There are those that that are apart from you. They're missing from the family of God. If it be your will, Father, I pray that your Spirit would draw them into fellowship with you. For all of us, Father, I pray that you would make known unto us the sin that's in our lives, the things that we're doing, and even the things that we've failed to do that we've been called to do. Every single one of us can be making some type of decision in this moment. Father, I pray that your spirit would guide and direct us. Help us to leave here, all of us, in a right relationship with you. Whatever that means or whatever that takes, make it happen, Father. In the name of your Son, and it is for your glory that we ask these things.